Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the place in the Freightwaves family of podcasts, which we call Freightcasts, where we talk about oil and we talk about diesel and we talk about whatever else we want to talk about. This week, we're going to be joined by Max Farrell of Workhound. He's going to be talking about the feedback he gets and got from drivers during the challenging year of 2020, challenging it, to put it mildly, and he'll be here to talk about that. But first, let's talk about the oil industry. Since Joe Biden was sworn in as president, the oil business is very clearly right in the Biden administration's targets. New leasing on federal lands is going to be blocked. The Keystone XL pipeline is going to be denied. And that's just in about eight days worth of the life of the administration. That, that's a lot. There's going to be a lot more to come. U.S. oil production on federal land accounts for about 9% of total U.S. production. Total U.S. production now is about 11 million barrels a day of crude. That isn't even counting the production of natural gas from federal lands, which is substantial. There are federal leases out there that are, have already been agreed to that will allow companies to continue drilling, even in the wake of this moratorium. So it's not as if federal drilling is going to drop to zero, but we're not sure how far it's going to drop. The ban applies to drilling for new lands. So it is difficult to quantify what sort of impact this is going to have on new production. Remember, when you frack and produce from the shale, the oil comes onto the market very, very quickly, unlike oil from more conventional wells, which takes some time, especially if they are offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. So measuring the number of barrels lost from this Biden administration move is pretty hard to do at this point. It might even be impossible, but it's not going to be zero. What is more pressing then for the oil industry is the shutdown of the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline, which was being built when the Biden administration yanked its permit to go ahead. First, there are a significant number of trucking jobs that haul all sorts of equipment to this project that runs through the heartland of the country. But when you're talking about transportation jobs, there is likely to be a sector that benefits from the failure to build this pipeline, and that's railroad jobs. That's because the oil out of Canada and North Dakota that would have moved on the Keystone XL line is still going to try to find a way to the market. And the only way that makes sense is rail. When crude by rail first revived around 2010, it seemed just crazy. Back during the time of John D. Rockefeller, oil did move on rail. And the cozy relationship between Rockefeller's standard oil and the railroads back then was a major political issue. But as pipelines were built, the need for moving oil by rail disappeared. When moving crude by rail resumed around 2010, it was because oil production in the, oil production in the heart of the U.S. and in Canada had started to increase, but there wasn't enough pipeline capacity to get it to markets, particularly in the beginning, the key delivery point in a town called Cushing, Oklahoma. So companies figured out that the economics worked to get it there by rail. Later, the economics worked even better to get it all the way down to the Gulf Coast and then all the way to the East Coast, and then all the way to the West Coast. So the West Coast actually might have been before the East Coast. I'm not really sure, but you get the picture. But pipeline capacity was being built at this time. In particular, one of the new lines that was built was the original Keystone Pipeline. The line being blocked by the Biden administration is an offshoot of that line, Keystone XL. You see that confused all the time. There's a Keystone line, it's operating. There's a Keystone XL line, was being built. Now it's shut down. The Keystone Line is in business carrying oil out of Canada and North Dakota. A natural gas pipeline called the Tallgrass Pipeline was converted to moving crude into Wyoming. A pipeline that had carried oil occasionally from the Gulf Coast to that Oklahoma delivery point of Cushing was reversed to take all that oil out of Oklahoma that came down from Canada and North Dakota and instead send it south to the Gulf Coast. There were others. I just kind of cherry picked those three. 
The end result of this is that a lot of that crude by rail business disappeared. In May 2015, the region of the country that includes North Dakota and the upper Midwest moved about 13 million barrels to the U.S. East Coast. That's in one month. In October, just October a few months ago, which is the most recent month for which figures are available, there was a little more than a tenth of that. But look at the combination that lies ahead. There will be restricted drilling on federal lands under a Biden administration. There will be no new leases. There are private sector restrictions, too, as some banks are showing signs of starting to pull in their lending horns. And this is an industry that needs a steady stream of capital to operate. So all this means that the U.S. is likely to be producing less crude and importing more from Canada. There's no reason to see any sort of demand drop to compensate for this. And there is no reason to think that Canada is going to be holding back its oil production. Its economy is far too dependent on it. Just look at the relationship between the price of oil and the strength of the Canadian dollar. It is almost a perfect correlation. All of this is happening even as pipeline capacity in Canada already is squeezed. November crude by rail exports, according to the Canadian government, shot way up from October. And I mean, I, I earlier I quoted a November number for the U.S. The uh, excuse me, I quoted an October number for the U.S. The November numbers uh, are out of Canada. Uh, we're still way behind where they were a few years ago in terms of crude by rail, but it's hard to find anybody who doesn't see them rising even more under a Biden administration. So the end result, more crude by rail. The jobs created in the rail sector as a result of this are not going to be enormous. They certainly won't displace in the short run, short run the big capital project of building XL. But the bigger issues are that moving crude by rail is far more dangerous than moving it by pipeline. Just go ask the residents of the Quebec town of Lac-Megantic, where a runaway crew train in 2013 ripped through that town, created a massive fireball. It destroyed half the buildings in the town and killed 47 people. How many people have died from building or even operating the pipeline? I'm sure there were some, but to accumulate 47, I think you'd have to go back a long way. Beyond that, the carbon footprint of moving it by rail is far greater than the, uh, than the carbon footprint of moving crude oil on a pipeline. But that is going to be the future. If there is a concern about carbon emissions, you tackle the demand for hydrocarbons. Cutting off the supply to push down demand is a brutal way of trying to accomplish that with a lot of economic disruption along the way. Let's move on now to our guest of the week. We're very happy to be joined today by Max Farrell. He's the CEO of WorkHound, which gathers an incredible amount of information of driver feedback, both positive and, and negative, through a phone-based app. And then his clients, so I guess are primarily trucking companies, use that information to strengthen and improve their relationship with their drivers. At least we hope they do. Welcome, Max, to Drilling Deep. Hey, thanks so much, John. Glad to be here. So I gave the very nickel tour there of what your company does. Why don't you give a little more information on the setup of, uh, of how that feedback goes from a driver to a trucking company client? And, and, and am I correct in my assumption that the vast majority of your clients are trucking companies? Uh, yes, in, in short, yeah. Trucking has been our, uh, our beachhead industry, but uh, what's been really rewarding is uh, other companies, whether in, in other industries or even the office staff at trucking companies are, are wanting to get a perspective of, of their, their people. Um, so we've been steadily expanding to serve additional populations as we've grown over the years. Okay, so this is voluntary, right? A, a truck driver would need to voluntarily 
uh, download the WorkHound app and and voluntarily choose to submit information to it. And but but based on the level of feedback you get, clearly there are a lot of volunteers out there. Uh, so yeah, it, people are are willing to share. You know, often people joke in this industry that if uh, if you pick up the phone and talk to a driver, it's hard to get them off. Like drivers have a lot to say. We, we just need to create an easy platform for them to do it. So what, what we do is a little bit different than, than an app. We actually don't have an app. There's no downloading or installing. The way we get feedback from drivers is via text message with a link. So with the companies we work with, each week we, uh, we send their drivers a text message that says, hey, John, t- tell us how work is going at Truckco. Your anonymous feedback helps. They tap that link, and in 90 seconds or less, they're able to share how they're feeling about work, and then open-ended why they feel that way. So we make it really easy because we know the demographics of this workforce and, uh, and they just want low friction ways to share. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm a driver for a company that does not use WorkHound, I'm not going to be able to supply feedback to that company. At, at this point, no. And, and the reason for that is that what we have learned in, in gathering feedback is that getting feedback is good, but doing something about it is better. And then at, and telling people what you did is the cherry on the sundae. So it's really important that if we're working with a carrier um, and we're getting feedback from their people, that we have ties to the executives and, and the decision makers inside that company so change can happen because that's when the you get exponential value. Right. So inevitably, when you hear about feedback, there's this almost human assumption that anybody who participates in something like this just wants to complain. But I listened in on your webinar last week. It was very good, very educational. And you've got categories of you have a category actually called praise. So how how do you divide that up? I mean, of, of the feedback you get, how much of it is praise? How much of it is sort of neutral? How much of it is just complaining? And, and do you have a tool where somebody who's just a chronic complainer kind of maybe gets excluded from the feedback? Those are great questions. So, so first off, on on the praise side, uh, what we saw in our data was that about thirty percent, or, or nearly a third of, of all feedback, was uh, positive. And uh, and so, what what was happening though is that the positive comments were very short. Um, the the negative feedback often left longer comments because people had more to say when they were frustrated. So, with the 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 positive comments, they were shortened to the point. So, we created this praise theme. Because in trucking, there is a really bad habit of always trying to fix what's broken instead of celebrating what's working well. And we needed to, to have those attaboy moments um, so that uh, companies could see, hey, we're doing some things well. We need to do more of it. Or this driver manager who has a really hard job is actually um, a helping us be a, a company of choice, and we need to recognize that. So as far as positive feedback goes, there's a lot of it. We just needed to find ways to make it more visible for companies. Right. And what kind of split would you say is the feedback in terms of things that a company can act on very rapidly to alleviate or uh, you know, to react to in some way versus something that's just more of a structural problem with the company that's going to take some time to fix? Um, so my, my personal answer is that uh, if you can't take action, you can at least show empathy. So I believe most of the feedback that comes in, you can do something about. If you can't make a change based on that feedback, uh, you can at least respond to them. And so we've we've built a couple of different ways where um, even though all the feedback we receive is anonymous, if someone reveal, someone uh, who shares feedback can choose to reveal their identity to directly address an issue, but also we, we've built it where companies can send anonymous one-time notifications where they don't know who shared the comment, 
but they see it and they, they see a path to resolution even without knowing who that person is. Uh, so those are some of the ways that we've, uh, we've seen companies take really lightweight, small bites into to making an impact when, when issues occur. So let me clarify that. So driver Bob, who doesn't want to be known, no, mm-hmm. doesn't want his employer to know that he's driver Bob, puts in a some kind of, I won't just call it a complaint, some kind of feedback. The company is informed that there is a driver out there who has this observation, um, this feedback. They're able to deal with it by sending a note to Bob without not knowing that it is Bob. Is, is that, am I describing it right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's what we call a one-time notification where um, the company sees that uh, that Bob has has an issue about um, about benefits, and they say, "Hey, Bob, we we've seen this a hundred times." Or they don't know who Bob is, but hey, hey, driver, we don't know who you are, but we've seen this a hundred times. Uh, here's a link to to a resource that that should answer your question. Um, if uh, if you don't, please call uh, Susie in, in payroll. She's she's ready to to answer. Here's her phone number, and that way. It, it bridges that uh, that communication gap and reduces that time of frustration. All right, so let's go to 2020. We started out the year sort of normal, then March was a great time for drivers. Their services were maybe more, never more needed than ever. <laughs> it's almost It was almost right. like wartime. Then, of course, the market collapsed for pretty much everybody except maybe a small segment. It got so bad that there were protests in Washington. President Trump took note of this. And then by the end of the year, you had this rip-roaring great market uh, certainly all the complaints about brokers that you heard in April and May, those were long gone out of the market. <laughs> I've got to imagine that your feedback must have shown that kind of whipsawing that drivers had over the course of just 12 months. Uh, it, it, it did. But one of the things that, that showed through the data was resilience, um, that if there was uncertainty, it would certainly pop up. So we saw spikes about COVID feedback in uh, March and April, but then it subsided because it became a, a new normal. Um, and then, as uh, um, as the, as the year went on, um, if there were issues, yeah, they'd certainly pop up. But there was really resilience where we saw feedback about people saying, "You know, I, I don't know what's uh, what's ahead of me, but I know I have a job to do because I'm carrying the, the the stuff for people to eat." Um, and that and that really stood out and was was really powerful over the past year. Do you think all that kind of praise from society in general about, you know, thank a trucker, kiss a trucker, whatever, uh, that we certainly heard more of in 2020, did you see any signs of that? Did you see signs that these drivers were feeling a little more appreciated than they might have in the past? Uh, certainly. Um, th- there, there was pride. Uh, and, and we saw that because there was a correlation between um, the, the pride and, and, the, and the COVID-19 feedback of that. There's a bunch of uncertainty here, but I have a job to do, and and I know I can I can make an impact during this really wild um, time in our lives. Uh, so so that feedback certainly showed up um, during it. Uh, but to your point around the the, the praise for for drivers, I, I think ultimately it was great for for the industry because trucking is uh, hasn't had a great rep um, across the, across society in, in the past couple, probably couple decades. Um, you know, and if you look back in the, in the seventies, maybe early eighties, drivers were seen as the white knights of the road, that sort of glamor has, has faded. But now, uh, some of that started to come back in 2020. And, and the, the question I hope the industry is asking in 2021 is how do we maintain some of that momentum? And, Let's go to some numbers. Um, you can, you've got lots of data, and I know from listening to that webinar last week that you try to quantify it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Are there any numbers that really stick out to you that tell 
the story of feedback in 2020 and what the driver experience was in this last in this last crazy year? Um, well, you know, of course, the logistics was was the top issue that people were uh, it had the most mentioned. So which tells us that drivers are wanting to to do their best work and and not have to deal with a whole bunch of variables. But unfortunately, the a truck driver has the entire burden of the supply chain on the sh- their shoulders. There's all these different variables that they really can't control, uh, and that creates immense frustration. Uh, and so, you know, if a driver's not moving, uh, oftentimes they're not making money. Uh, so that was one of the, the the biggest issues. But you know, of course, people are always trying to to think about what are the the critical issues that can be the difference between me fixing uh, a guy's issue and him staying with the company or, or us looking at an empty truck. Um, and pay was one of those those themes that had a lot of critical comments where if we didn't fix an issue quickly, um, somebody may uh, may choose to leave. But when it comes to pay, it wasn't people saying, I want more money. It was certainly mentioned. It was people just not understanding their pay or uh, um or thinking that it was that it was incorrect, and actually, forty one percent of the comments that we got about pay were questions, just people not understanding what was going on in their pay. And so there, there's a huge opportunity to improve pay transparency, simplicity, and communication. Yeah, because as far as pay rates, of course, by the end of the year, really, I think the first stories that we at Freightways wrote about about companies increasing their pay. Uh, I know we, we wrote a story about Schneider, and then we wrote a story that Schneider was actually following some smaller companies that had already done it. And by, you know, by the end of the year, even into early January, I don't know how, how many stories we'd written about that. Right. So pay was definitely going up. But uh, what you, I can imagine that some of these paychecks, if you're a driver, you look at them and you just go, I have no idea where they came up with that number. Yeah, it's um, it, it certainly often feels like a, a knee-jerk reaction. And so like when – like I'm, I'm a fan of, of drivers making as, as much money as, as possible that uh, that works um, for for the the economy and, and fits everything in there. But um, for for companies, if they're looking to make a, a decision, I would first look at our the pay communication because in North America, trucking has the, probably the most complex pay structure. Um, and so the the natural next step would be instead of trying to raise pay, make it understandable. And then if that doesn't solve the problem, maybe raise pay. Right. Now, what uh, what did you see in terms of retention trends? Are you able to draw anything from the feedback and then draw a conclusion that retention is high, low, medium, whatever? So when it, when it comes to retention, we, we did an analysis to determine were, were more urgent comments a, uh, a correlation to the higher turnover trends? Because what we saw was that in, uh, in Q2 and to some extent uh, – uh, well, really Q2, that all of a sudden people had record uh, retention quarters. They thought that they were the, they were the best in the business because nobody wanted to leave. There was a ton of uncertainty. Uh, and so we did an analysis in Q3 as all of a sudden the, uh, the gloves were off and turnover spiked across the industry. People didn't know what to do. Uh, and we, we did not see a correlation between the, the, critical com- the number of critical comments and that, that higher turnover. And so what it told us is that um, you know, people are going to share their issues as they pop up. Um, you're going to get multiple chances to, to fix those issues. Um, but whether you get three chances or six chances or nine chances to before somebody says, you know what, I, I've had enough, I'm done, uh, really depends on, on the individual that you're working with. 
Um, so really, it, it, it is uh, my recommendation to companies is creating a habit of regularly and, and in a timely fashion addressing the sorts of issues that pop up, even if they don't seem like a, a make it or break it comment, because those are the buildups that can lead to somebody ultimately leaving an organization. I want you to think about your best client, not, not the client that pays you the most money, but the client, <laughs> and, and, and I, won't, I won't ask you to identify them by name, but the client that you feel has the best system for taking what they get and putting it into action for really getting the best value out of the feedback that they get from WorkHound. Uh, what are some of the secrets of that company? What, what do they do that others don't? Um, well, uh, it's a great question. Uh, so the, the first thing is, is making sure that you're addressing feedback on multiple layers inside the, the company. So at the, at the grassroots level, it's just addressing those, those individual issues as they come in, letting people know, we hear you, we're, we're trying to do something about it. Or if you can't do something about it, explain why you can't. Um, and, and that's a great habit in itself. But the, these, the, the, com- the innovative companies that are, are really making a dent in, in their turnover and in improving their driver culture, uh, they also have the executives tied into this, where the executives are looking at the data, they're making strategic decisions about how to change how they operate or improve the driver experience based on, on this data. And, and one of the, the faults that a lot of companies do is that they say, oh, yeah, we really care about retention. We have a guy named uh, Joe that, that sits in a, an office with no windows and randomly calls people each day, but we never talk to Joe about what the issues are. So really change doesn't happen. Uh, so ultimately, the, the most innovative companies, the most successful companies are the ones that roll up their sleeves, have a process for addressing grassroots issues, making strategic change, and have accountability throughout their, uh, their org chart to, to make sure that these things really do take effect. You know, I'm a big Seinfeld fan, and one of my favorite lines is when Jerry and Elaine were talking about something that had happened, some minutia that had happened, and one of and Jerry goes, "People, they're the worst." But you have a distinct <laughs> category called people, and it is uh, where interpersonal relationships uh, are, are highlighted. What did you find on in the people category this year? People getting along better and working more cooperatively in 2020 than in prior years, or it was just the stress of this pandemic uh, causing a lot of strain in those relationships. Uh, well, so with uh, with people, it, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing about that Seinfeld quote. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's it's a love hate relationship. You know, with with people, the majority of the the comments were actually positive, and I can't say that about uh, most of the other themes. Um, so with with uh, people, that's the area where people are likely to praise. They're going to praise. Their, their driver manager if, uh, if they help them out or, or, or praise a fellow driver for helping them out in a situation. But on, on the flip side, the, uh, the moment something goes wrong, it's, it's going to lead to, to frustration. So it could be that um, someone uh, feels like they got shorted by, by a particular individual. Uh, often planners are, uh, are, are the finger point uh, as far as creating headaches for, for drivers um, and often drivers feel that there's uh, a lack, that there's not an empathy coming from, from the other side. And, and often it's true. You have somebody that may just be a few years out of college that is a driver manager and now sees themselves as the boss of 40 professional drivers, even though they've never been in a truck themselves. And that naturally will create friction because people, uh, they, they don't understand what it's like out there. Uh, and if you don't have empathy, you can't really... Um, have full understanding. Um, so uh, as far as it, it, 
some of the comments were, were great and there, there was praise and, and people theme. On the flip side, there was uh, incredible frustration if they felt like uh, someone was screwing them over. You know, it's it's fascinating to me too because my background is not in trucking, so but I've been watching this industry now for about three years, and just all of the effort that has to go into retention. Uh, there are so many retention consultants out there. A company like yours is aimed at you know retention. I guess is probably the ultimate goal, though there's some other things in there too. It, it does, is all this needed? Is this just to stay even? That without all this, things would get even worse. I mean, your you know success is is considered a sixty percent turnover. Right. Um, that without it, you know, if you you'd be up to one fifty. That this uh, this is an effort mostly just making sure things don't deteriorate even more. Um, I mean, it, it is a, a complex issue, as, as I'm sure you've heard people talk about before. There, there's no silver bullet when it comes to tackling turnover. Um, what we aim to do is help companies figure out where do you fire the, the buckshot. Um, and it, this is the same in, in any industry is that if, if you listen to your people and act on what they say and tell them what you did, good things will, will happen. And what uh, what trucking companies are are actually doing a much better job of now than than when we started about six years ago, um, they are taking um, building a, a strong driver culture seriously. Um, so often, a lot of decisions have been made in companies based on spreadsheet data, um, and there hasn't been great people data. So for us, we want to bring people data to the companies to say, use this to help make your decisions, not just some spreadsheet where you haven't. Um, you know, interacted with what people are thinking, feeling, wishing, and wanting. Any uh, big suggestions for 2021 to you, to your, not just to your clients, but to the, the managers of trucking companies in general, based on what you know? Well, so I'm, I'm glad this isn't a prediction question, because I feel for everybody that made their predictions. I won't at the beginning. <laughs> um, so as far as uh, the, the year ahead, um, I certainly see technology continuing to be uh, embraced more. Um, you know, for, for efficiency gains, but also just the fact that being around people, it isn't necessarily safe right now. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the biggest thing I could emph- emphasize is being a driver's co-pilot. Uh, so, you know, continually checking into their needs and, and not always just about um, the work, but often figuring out how do we take their feedback to make work better. Um, and if we're empathetic and, and we're asking those sorts of questions, I, I really do think good things will happen for, for companies, as we've seen uh, for the past five years. Max Farrell, I hope you'll join me again on Drilling Deep. Hey, thanks so much, John. Enjoy the conversation. So we've been joined by Max Farrell. He is the CEO and founder, co-founder of WorkHound, um, an incredible data source on what the drivers on the road are thinking. Uh, reach out to him if you need to. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from Freightways. We're on all of the major platforms for podcasts. We hope you'll tune in again and again and again. I'm your host, John Kingston. See you next time. <laughs>